we are prepared for, you know, referred to as catastrophic loss situation, something unforeseen entirely in of itself. For example, uh, unfortunately, not, you know, 9-11 in the United States, right. when, you, when you, you had the World Trade Centers collapse and, and, around, and surrounding properties, tremendous losses there. And, and unfortunately, it also not only was it a large property loss, large human loss, a large loss to the nation, but the reality is a lot of folks were uh, at work. Mm-hmm. And it was a workers' compensation issue. Welcome to The Defense Never Rests with Morgan and Akins, your monthly dose of uncommon sense about all things legal and some that are not. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of The Defense Never Rests. I am your host, Megan Henry, and I am joined by my co-host, Nate Bolander. Hi, Nate. Good morning. How are you? I'm great. Welcome back. I had, it's been a while. I know. I'm going to be regular now. I'm I think the last... I think the last time I had you on, I, it was our burning questions episode. So I was worried you'd never come back. Uh, yeah, I thought you said you wanted me to do volume two and I agreed. So I obviously yeah. I'm not so scared off. Yeah. So um, preview, we're going to do another one, everyone. <laughs> and I'm <laughs> going to not- be a lot deeper with my questions. I'm not letting you off the hook again. I know I'm a little scared, but mm-hmm. that's not what we're doing today. Mm-hmm. So Today we have on David Corey, who is a senior VP at Argo Group, um, and he is coming in to talk a little bit or a lot about underwriting because it's simply something I don't totally understand, but I know how important it is on the insurance industry. So I thought it would be, you know, an interesting topic to to talk about today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we deal mostly with the claim side of, of things, and, and this is way behind the scenes, and it'd be interesting to pull back the curtain and get a view into that uh, part of the industry. Yeah. Absolutely agree. So with that, let's bring him in. Good morning, David. So happy to have you join us this morning on the Defense Never Rests. Um, how are you this morning? I'm well, thank you. And uh, Nate is co-hosting with me today. I always love to have Nate on. He's He adds a nice little, some good funny zingers to, to the podcast. We'll see if they're muted today, given my allergies, but we'll try. I'll try my best. So for, for our listeners who don't know, you um, are a senior VP at Argo Group. Um, but, you know, I'm always interested to hear whenever I have any anyone on that is in um, insurance about your career path and how you got there. Because a lot of us, you know, don't you don't graduate college and say, hey, I'm going to go, you know, <laughs> work for work in insurance. And everyone's path is a little different. So I'm curious to see how you ended up where, where you are today. Um, well, I hate to be the first, but I am the first. I did, when I was in school, decided to go into insurance. So, um, uh, well, yeah, so I, I so I, uh, I had, a, my grandfather was an insurance agent, just, you took, you know, a kind of a, uh, personal lines, insurance agent, had it in his, out of his house kind of a thing. So I got a little, just a, as a kid, kind of exposure to that and folks coming over to his house and, uh, renewing their homeowners and auto insurance, uh, so I remember those days, but uh, no, I got into school. So I attended the University of Cincinnati and I was a finance major. And as I got more into my junior year, um, you know, I had lots of friends at their career path. This was the early 80s. We're going to go into banking, commercial lending. And that, uh, and the, the explosion of mutual funds, all that kind of started at that time, really, I think. And uh so I, I just felt like working at a big bank was not going to be attractive to me. I, I, I kind of wanted to really focus. I always thought that was important to focus and be more uh, lasered in, in what I did. And so I leaned towards insurance and I felt like, you know, if you went, you know, out of 20 finance grads that I knew, you know, I was the only one going to insurance. And I thought, well, maybe this is a better career path for me, more opportunity. And, and so I, 
I, I actually picked up a double major. So I actually was able to, at that time, the, the, the business school offered a major in insurance, actuarial science and insurance. So I double majored in finance and insurance uh, and uh, decided to work for a carrier. Uh, I was uh, graduated and I was gone for about a year with the, uh, the National Guard going to officer school when I got back. And um, sure enough, I was, uh, I, I had a friend of mine that I, went to, that, uh, I knew that uh, was working in an insurance company and, and uh, he called me out of the blue and he said, uh, they're looking for claims or underwriting. When you want to come out and interview and I thought, well, okay. So I, I, I said, is the claims inside claims or outside claims? Because I didn't want to be at a desk handling claims all day. And he said, oh, it's inside claims. I said, well, I'll go underwriting. So, <laughs> so I, uh, that's kind of how I got into it. So I went out and interviewed with uh, several people. They offered me a job right away and got into underwriting. And, you know, you, so when we, we had talked a few or a week or so ago, um, and you've been in the industry for 30 years. 35, so, 35 years. I hate to say it. <laughs> well, no, you love to say it. you wanted to do this. Yeah, <laughs> this, yeah. this, this, this is the path you've chosen. But how have you seen the insurance industry evolve over the time? Oh, it's dramatic <clears throat> on a carrier side and the broker side. Uh, dramatic. The distribution channels have changed dramatically and the carrier side has changed dramatically. When I first started my career, I was I was I had actually started in, in the city of Cincinnati, which I would say is probably a tier two city in the U.S., um, and there were, there were over two dozen insurance companies that had branch operations in, in the size of a city like Cincinnati through the eighties, what you saw is just rapid mergers and acquisitions on the carrier side. Um, and if I was to take a pad of paper and write down from A to Z, those 25 insurance companies that had branch offices in Cincinnati, half of those companies are not even in existence today. They got acquired by other, by competitors. Uh, and then 20, 23 out of the 25 don't even have offices in a city like Cincinnati anymore. So what you've, what you've seen is you've seen consolidation. You've seen carriers uh, through the use of technology, which is a whole separate conversation, being, uh, being able to uh, regionalize their operations. And so that's kind of one of the reasons why in my career, I, I moved into Chicago uh, about 11 years ago uh, to relocate for a, for a job that I moved into that was a national job. So it was, it, so it was two things. I could, have, I could have done that job from any office in the, at that time in the company, but I chose Chicago because uh, what I saw here in the Midwest was the Chicago's got bigger. You know, so if you look at the insurance industry, the New York market, maybe a little bit of Philadelphia, you go down the coast, it's really goes and morphs into Atlanta, Chicago, Dallas, Houston, and in California, it's it's really Houston and or excuse me, Los Angeles and, and San Francisco and some some degree Denver. So companies, all the carriers uh, have decided really to kind of go to more of a hub and spoke system. So they have bigger regional offices in larger larger cities in the U.S. And then when they they typically have small, if they have branch offices, it's smaller or it's production staff in in, in other cities. Uh, and then the second part of that is technology, of course. When I, when I first started uh, in 1986 working at a desk, um, I did not even have a personal computer, <laughs> right? So you didn't have them. You know, there, was, there were a couple, three of these quote-unquote dumb terminals, if, if for those folks that uh, may be aware of those, but there were basically IBM computers that you would sit down and click on and you could research and find something, but there was not an interactive desktop computer. You probably had to put a disc in too, like a little floppy disk. Floppy disk. 
And, you know, there was a uh, telex machine. And I'm, I'm sure people don't even know what the heck a telex machine was. But, uh, but I, I remember when the first fax machine came in. It was around yeah. 87, you know. Yeah. Uh, you think, I was going to ask, do you think that the technology has made insurance less personal? Because you, you grew up watching someone in your own household renew policies with a handshake and meet people face to face. And then, you know, now you're talking about, you know, moving from telex to fax to now personal computers and people can do remote claims now and things like that. Or you don't even need to talk to a person. Well, of course not. Yeah, exactly. I remember I got a fender bender about five years ago and they said, Geico said, send pictures of the accident. And I did. And the police report. And they said, here's your rental car. Here's, I mean, it was, I didn't speak to a single human being other than a chat on my phone. So do you think that's, that's helped or hurt the industry? I know it's more productive per se, but is it, is it better? I would say it, it, it depends on the, on the, on the side of the, um, whether it's personal lines, commercial lines, or specialty lines, there's still a tremendous amount of business that has to be conducted one-on-one. -on -one. If you look at the personal lines, clearly, uh, the, I think the direct riders, if you will, the, the, the insurance companies that can write insurance without going through an ins a licensed insurance agent or broker. Those would be like your state farms, your all states, your nationwide uh, type companies. They can go direct consumer uh, and, and there's others. Um, you know, they're, they're probably the ones that kind of evolved to an app and kind of the process you just described uh, because it was kind of part of their DNA and how they were set up as an organization. Other carriers have kind of gone that way. Some carriers have chosen not to do that because they, they want to utilize the independent insurance agent and broker network, insurance broker network, and they don't want to fringe upon that distribution channel. Uh, when you get into the commercial lines, there are commercial lines available through apps. And, and online and, and, and small business owners can go on and, 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 and use websites, but there are still, there's still a tremendous amount of insurance that is placed. You know, I would even say like the, certainly the fortune fives, but even if you go down, let's say fortune 1000s in that, in that range, um, uh, they really need, you know, for a vast majority of their insurance, they have to interact with an insurance agent or broker. Uh, the fortune fives, most of those firms have a risk manager in place someone whose position is to uh, advise typically the CFO or uh, the treasury uh, treasurer manager on insurance purchases and advise overall risk management exposures of the company from across the whole spectrum of property casualty and specialty insurance. And depending upon the company, they may have the larger fortune fives. They may have, you know, aviation exposure. They may, 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 may have a, a marine exposure. So they, they buy uh, policies to protect your vessels. So, uh, that kind of that kind of complex risk is very difficult to do through uh, simply an app. On a, sure. On a yeah, I mean, I think the difference is maybe towards personal lines versus like larger commercial lines for for companies. I think you know if you're getting homeowners insurance or car insurance, I think you probably the the personal part is kind of taken out of the equation now. But of course, for like those much larger transactions, it's much more complex. It is, and it also depends on the personal lines exposure too. I mean, the yeah. ultra the ultra wealthy, the high net worth that's usually they refer to as high net worth individuals. Uh, those folks that, that have um, uh, multiple homes, high valued homes, they have uh, high valued automobile schedules. They have yeah. uh, perhaps uh, vacation homes that are, that is coastal exposed, um, and uh, or, or yachts, large vessels, art collections. Um, You'll, you'll see those, that segment all continue to work with uh, uh, 
a broker who understands that exposure yeah. can place it for them. Yeah, I'm not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know many of them, or I don't think I know any of them. <laughs> I, I, in my career, I've actually seen, I've actually seen customers that spend three, $400,000 a year on personalized premiums. Well, I, but I can, I can understand that if you have multiple homes, you have artwork, you have, you, you may, maybe you have a per, personal, you know, jet, you might have a yacht. Yeah. You're going to spend that much because you have a lot to insure. You have a lot to protect. Right. And, you know, you might be insuring your legs. I mean, who knows what you're insuring. Yeah, we had a Lloyd's of London representative on uh, the podcast who said that David Beckham insures his legs and Marilyn Monroe insures. I mean, the people insure body parts all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When it's part of your livelihood, and you need to do that, I think. Um, so, in, you're when you your whole career you've been in underwriting, and we're kind of here a little bit to talk about underwriting because, you know, for for some people like maybe Nate and I and others, underwriting is like an enigma to us. And I understand it's like the backbone of the insurance industry, but a lot of us don't really understand the ins and outs and how it actually works and how you go in to assess the overall risk of your insured to be able to, you know, develop a policy for them. So, I mean, in the I guess in kindergarten type terms, <laughs> can you explain how the underwriting process works? Well, sure. I, you know, I, I, I always, and this is my personal view, uh, if, from an insurance carrier's perspective, if you think about it, you, you have, is, is a running a business. So in the very basic uh, business 101, you have, do, you know, any company, you have dollars in and dollars out, right? So you have revenue that comes in the organization and you have revenue that goes out. Uh, in a, for an insurance company, that happens to be premium. Premium is our revenue in, and claims. Claims expense is our is our dollars out. And of course, we have other expenses besides claims, but our largest is our claims. What the position of the underwriter is for the organization is they are they are the professional risk taker. They are the ones that are that are accountable for the new business and the renewal business that the, that the carrier writes. So it's. I feel like I always felt like underwriting uh, was more critical, at least in my opinion, and I'm biased to to for for businesses and for our economy to 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 hum and go along. You know, I, I use I use the banking as an example. Friends of mine that got into commercial banking. Now I now I know there's there's exceptions to this, and I know in the 0809 financial crisis, clearly the banks took financial risk and lost billions and trillions of dollars on on bad loans. But fundamentally, the a, a commercial banker shouldn't take a loss. You know they should underwrite and, and and they protect themselves. And one of the way they protect themselves, for example, is they require insurance on on what they're lending money on. Uh, or if you look at a commercial banker. Even in your homeowner home, you have to buy homeowners insurance, and that's to protect the loan, right? That's to protect the value of the home in case it does burn, unfortunately burn to the ground. The bank, there is insurance there. Same in same in commercial lines insurance. So the job of the, the very basic job of the underwriter, regardless of what line of insurance it is, whether it's a property coverage, whether it's a casualty coverage, whether it's a specialty uh, line, like for example, directors and officers insurance. The job of the underwriter is to be very knowledgeable in that line of insurance, know the, 
learn the exposures associated with assuming the risk, be very proficient in their the policy form that's covering that risk, and, and then ultimately determine a premium that's acceptable for weighing the exposures uh, and, and, and buying that business for the company. And in a, in a way, I kind of, and now that you've explained it, look at it a little bit like taxes. Like at the end of the year, you really want your taxes to be even, you know, you, you don't want to owe and you don't want a huge return because you want to pay in, you know, during the year, what, what you owe. Is that like, is that a on point analogy to that? Well, it, it depends on the company and it depends if you're publicly traded. Mm hmm. Uh, the, the companies that, that are publicly traded, the insurance carriers that are publicly traded, I should say, require a, a, you know, so I think what you're referring to is, let me just back up, is what's referred to in the industry as the combined ratio. The combined ratio is the combination of the, uh, of the claim expense and the company's expense of operating the company. So it's, it's, our, it's our underwriting, referred to as the underwriting expense. The those, those two numbers added together, the claim expense and the underwriting expense, if it's at one, if it's at one or 100 as a combined ratio, it basically means that for every dollar of premium you're taking in, you're paying out a dollar. Mm -hmm. in, in, in the past in the industry, depending upon where interest rates were and depends upon the insurance company's balance sheet and where they had their investments, that might have been sufficient. Um, the last decade that has not been sufficient. You cannot return your return on equity, your ROE requirements uh, at 100% combined ratio. And, and, and most public companies try to try to achieve like a 15% ROE, meaning that, that, that their equity, the, equity you know, the shareholders equity in the company that they wanna return as a target, maybe a 15% ROE on that every year. When interest rates are dramatically low, when the when the in, in the property and casualty insurance business, they they cannot typically invest in equities. They're investing in treasury, commercial bonds, high grade bonds, and so when those rates are very low, you know the thirty year bond. I mean, look at look at look at even today what the thirty year bond is yielding. Right. It's, it's even it's it was last year it was less than a point. So you think about it, you're investing you're investing money for thirty years and. And you're going to get less than one percent interest on it. <laughs> so um, that that's ticked up now to I don't know I don't know what the thirty years going for today, but it's it's it was one one forty one thirty something like that. Um, but but the point is this is that the invest the balance sheet the investment assets of that company is not not generating sufficient returns to run a one hundred percent combined ratio to achieve the fifteen percent ROE. So today. Uh, I would say, generally speaking, this is a general comment that, that most companies are targeting somewhere in the, in the high 80s, 80, 86, 87, 88 is a combined ratio. Sometimes it, it depends on the cat issue, it depends on unforeseen circumstances like COVID-19 that drove tremendous losses into the insurance industry. Now, if you're a mutual company, that's a different conversation because there's not sure, you know, it's a it's run as a mutual, it's a different financial mm -hmm. model. Now, I, I, that, I'm glad you mentioned COVID because I was going to, that was actually the next thing I was going to ask. Like you have something like, like COVID that we, we, I mean, I don't think anyone really anticipated it to, 
to happen <laughs> and at the magnitude it did. And I mean, the, the ripple effect and the impact on that, on the insurance industry was, was huge. So, you know, how, how does that factor in when you, you, you've done all this work with the under underwriting and you think you've assessed a company's risk and something like, you know, this pandemic happens. Well, that's, that's why my earlier comment, I felt, I feel as though in the insurance industry is vital, extremely vital to the operation of, of, of economies around the world. And so the insurance industry is a backstop. We have reserves. We are prepared for, you know, referred to as catastrophic loss situations, whether that's natural disasters, such as wind, like hurricanes, a hurricane wind or tornado, it's massive flooding, which again could be hurricanes or flooding from heavy, heavy storms, heavy rain, uh, or it's something unforeseen entirely of itself. For example, uh, unfortunately, not, you know, 9-11 in the United States, right. when, you, when you, you had the World Trade Centers collapse and, and, around, and surrounding properties. Um, tremendous losses there. And, and unfortunately, it also not only was it a large property loss, large human loss, a large loss to the nation, but the reality is a lot of folks were uh, at work. Mm-hmm. And it was a workers' compensation issue. And, uh, and I remember one company in particular that, that I won't name, but it was a bond trading company. And I believe they lost almost the entire their yeah. staff in New York City. And, and so the, the insurance industry stepped up almost immediately the next day and stated, uh, and I remember one carrier in particular stated that they were not going to uh, invoke the war, cl- war clause exclusion in the policy for 9-11. And they yeah. would step up and pay those workers' compensation claims. And so other carriers followed suit and did the same thing. Um, and, and so that's what, the, that's what the industry's about. It's about spreading risk. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the, as an industry, they're able to, to sustain these large losses. And so when, when you move forward now from COVID, how does your job change as an underwriter? So, you know, obviously that we were not prepared for that. How do we prepare for it in the future from an underwriting perspective? Yeah, good question. You know, one of the things the industry tries, to, the carrier side tries to do is, is learn from past events. So, so although COVID hit the industry, that was not the first time there was a virus viral issue viruses and, and you know if you uh, SARS was was another, was one that was that had happened before and there, there were others so comp- some companies um, had exclusions for communicable disease they had you know certain, it depends on how they worded their exclusions but there were some exclusions in property casualty policies for communicable disease exclusions or virus type exclusions based upon prior events that have happened um, and now, now you're seeing some of that litigated now with the, with the uh, policyholders seeking business interruption coverage on their, on their property casualty policies, mostly the property policies, alleging that they, they, they are, they're entitled, or at least they have submitted a, a business interruption claim. And on the carrier side, the carrier's argument is that's not a covered peril. That being told to close your, for example, your restaurant, if the if the city or state uh, that you're at located in required you to close your restaurant for six months or nine months, um, that's not a covered property peril loss. It's not like a fire, uh, vandalism, windstorm, etc. 
Um, now, some policies did not have those exclusions. Some carriers didn't use them. Uh, some, and, and, and there, were, there was a lot of insurance that didn't have those, that, 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 that did anticipate, uh, if you will, I shouldn't say anticipated COVID, but there's some insurance, for example, in event cancellation insurance, which is available. You, you know, if you go to a, a Broadway show, uh, if you go, uh, if you see like, a, 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 you know, if you go to the movies, that movie without movies being produced and being in production, uh, a live concert, a music concert, a lot of those events, entertainment, if you will, have what's called event cancellation. And, and uh, there, there are like all insurance policies, there's an insurance agreement and there's coverages and definitions of what's covered. Vast majority, I think, of those policies do not have a, a communicable disease type exclusion, nor, nor would it be applicable because it's a broad-based type policy. The event has been canceled. Mm-hmm. You know, it could have been from a variety of reasons, but the event didn't go on. Could be the performer was ill. It could have been there was a fire at the facility. There could have been, you know, so, so the industry did step up and, and, and the, the carriers that offered those type of coverages did, you know, obviously receive those claims. And, and if they felt they were covered claims, they, they, they paid according to the policy. Now, when, um, you know, Nate and I work uh, on, you know, the other side with, with claims and how do, you know, big claim, large claim losses affect the underwriting process for, for future premiums and, you know, renewals. Right. Right. Well, it, it, I would answer it two ways, potentially two ways. So you may have a one-time single event that's that's quote unquote a lot in your words a large loss or shock loss. For example, you may have a, a single location property. Like there was an there was an example this week. Uh, there was a large fire at a facility in Illinois that was a chemical that is a chemical. Well, I guess it was <laughs> a, chemi- a chemical manufacturing facility, um, and the building burned to the ground. There was an explosion. Luckily, all the employees were able to get out of the facility. Um, heavy smoke and fire, uh, and it burnt entirely to the ground. Now, I don't, I don't perceive to know what the property value was on that building, um, but let's say it's a hundred million dollar building, and that would be a total loss. So that's one situation. The other one you get into, like for example, a, 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 a named storm. So let's say we're coming into the hurricane season now, right? In the summer, and uh, if, if a hurricane hits um, a particular area and widespread property losses, that those type of claims are typically go into what's called a cat unit, the catastrophe unit for the insurance company. So what the carrier typically does is they funnel those claims and they code those claims for let's say a, a, a name a hurricane, a named storm hurricane. They would, behind the scenes, they would assign that to their cat unit. They have folk, they have individuals who are experienced, have been there, done that, and, and work catastrophe losses. And they, they, they engage all of their, they may have to engage all their claim adjusters across the country. Uh, for example, let's pick Florida. So let's say it hits the state of Florida. So typically a carrier may have adjusters who typically handle that territory. Well. The sheer size of the number of claims are going to be such that they may get claim adjusters come in from, from the western states up in the northeast to come down the Midwest to help out Florida. Again, all those claims would typically be, would run up and the carrier would, would code those as cat losses. I'm using the word cat 
Um, and, and they would account for that from their premium, from their, uh, from their accounting perspective. Mm -hmm. They would typically roll that up as a total. And then if they're publicly traded, depends upon the time frame. but they would probably make an earnings announcement uh, per, coming up to quarter close, an estimate to the shareholders, what they anticipate the cat loss total would be. They would probably also engage their reinsurance unit uh, because they buy reinsurance typically um, for cat type losses. Yeah. And so they would be engaged with their reinsurers through this whole process. But what about the situations when we have these like have nuclear verdicts and, you know, the situations that you can assess, you know, Nate and I do everything that we can. We say, you know, we do the jury verdict research, we assess the, the, the damages and we say, you know, this is your potential exposure. And then you take it to trial and, you know, you get hit with a $10 million verdict or whatever. I mean, how, how, what's the impact of that? Well, it's, it's, it, the impact is it's, that, that's been happening for a number of years in a number of jurisdictions. It's, it's, it happens. Well, number one is to talk about the financial side. So the financial side of that, Carriers have reinsurance treaties. So either either they buy, they may particularly buy facultative reinsurance, which which is which is a, which facultative reinsurance is an individual reinsurance purchase on an individual policy. The other way of handling that is most typically handled in a, in a, in a treaty reinsurance arrangement. It's usually a one year period of time, and the insurance company has a reinsurance unit. Uh, usually at the home office or corporate level that negotiates reinsurance on the entire portfolio, whether it's a property portfolio, it's a casualty portfolio, or it's specialty lines, like for example, directors and officers type coverages. And depending upon the insurance company, those treaties kick in at a certain amount. And there's, there's you know, there, I, I don't want to get too much into the reinsurance, but there would be a, probably a reinsurance trigger so, but, but the, but the carrier would have to bear the whole 10 million. And ultimately if it's settled and it, if we thought the carrier doesn't appeal it and ultimately it is indeed a $10 million example that you, that you've cited. Once that's settled, the, the carrier who's, who's been advising probably their treaty reinsurers all through this process would then seek reimbursement, whatever that percentage would be from the reinsurers. That's the individual, that particular claims transaction. The big brunt of that claim still is gonna be handled by the primary insurance company. The impact of that over a period of time on a number of claims is that as this has happened over the years, the insurance companies, when they negotiate their treaties, the treaty reinsurers, you know, they're, they're, they wanna make money too, right? So they're, they're looking at these verdicts and they, and they may decide, um, Let's say that let's say they were in that first ten million. They were taking, uh, a, you know, sixty percent of that ten million. If you hit that shock loss, now they might say we only want forty percent of that first ten. We want to move up. We think verdicts are going up too much, and we 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 want either more of your premium or a higher attachment point. Yeah. Uh, the other the other situation you're faced with with the reinsurers is that. They could be very topical, uh, you know. In the, I would say this calendar year, as companies' treaties have come up for casualty treaties have come up for renewal, 
the reinsurers are very focused on municipality business, for example, uh, and specifically uh, fire, or excuse me, not fire, police, police liability. Yeah. Sure. Are you writing? Are you writing liability? Uh, well, I shouldn't say the police department, the municipal business. Okay. Typically, the liability policies would be for a city, a county, a township, and so with the issues that are going on with with the police and the public, um, and settlements, et cetera, that they're very laser focused on uh, asking the carriers, do you write liability policies for municipalities? Mm -hmm. Is the police department included in that, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, so it's really, it's an individual risk issue. And then over a period of time, it's a trend. And as yeah. the trend goes up on the larger verdicts, uh, it impacts maybe perhaps even the decision to, to even write the insurance in that particular either line of insurance or geographically. Yeah, I know you're not on the ground doing the claims handling per se, but internal conversations amongst insurance folks, is it leading you think to more um, not risking going to jury, right? Settling the case, resolving the case before that? Is there a, is there kind of a, um, are people scared to, in a really liberal, really urban, usually jurisdiction, take it to trial because you might get hit with that? Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I can't speak for our claims professionals, but they are, they are extremely knowledgeable of, of that issue and work with our panel counsel, our inside house counsel, and that are assigned to particular cases. And if they're the advice, if the advisement is from the, is that we do not want to go to jury trial on this case, that certainly impacts the decisions to, to try to negotiate. Yeah. I mean, it, we see it all the time on, on our end. I mean, you know what venues you don't really want to go to trial on, or at least you're you're very careful of what you assess. <laughs> and you know, I mean, there's you know Philadelphia and Miami Dade County, and like there's certain counties that you're just like, mm. <laughs> this this night this night might not be the one we want to tee up <laughs> right now and put the risk on the table. <clears throat> Right. I, I think that's prudent. And I think, I think obviously um, that's, that's why you, you know, that's why we engage panel counsel. That's why we, you know, we have in-house counsel and, 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 you know, I, I'm sure all of us do our due diligence in looking at prior verdicts, prior decisions, prior settlements, similar, similar circumstances and, and making a decision on whether or not it's uh, to, to press, press it and try to go to a, in front of a judge or a jury or just try to negotiate a settlement. I mean, I do think the challenge with, with any, any evaluation of prior verdicts and um, when you do the jury verdict research is there always is that element of you just don't know. <laughs> I mean, you could look at every verdict, you know, in, in that venue for the same exact injuries and they can all be trending one way and you just, you, sometimes you just don't know what your particular jury is going to do. So there's always like a risk. There's always a risk on the table, even in a conservative venue, you still, t there is a risk on the table. You just, you don't know what that group of eight or 12 individuals are going to focus on and what, what they're going to take away from it. So um, it, it's, I would say it's a, a science with, with some art mixed, mixed in. <laughs> <laughs> with it and, and i've looked at it's interesting as you say that because I, I would say you, i would agree with you 100 percent. and I, I would also say that over the years that i've learned is claimants come in all shapes sizes and colors too right so meaning meaning you know someone who's injured who's who's 25 is different than somebody who's injured who is 65 
you know, someone who was injured, let's say, and is married and has four children comes into that uh, situation different than, let's say, someone who's single and 30. Right. Um, someone who's contributed to the situation, perhaps. Maybe there's partial negligence on the claimant. Uh, that, that can be proven clearly. Or perhaps there was, we believe, partial negligence, but it's going to be very difficult to prove it. So all claims are different. All people are different. You know, um, you'll, you'll see that in workers' compensation, for example. Uh, a, you know, a young person, let's say someone in their 20s, might slip and fall and, and bounce back up off the floor and dust it off and go right back at work. Same person who's in their mid-50s falls, and then it's, it's a broken hip or it's a back injury, and it's a, it's a partial permanent situation for a while. Yeah. And the thing that I'm learning more and more over time, it seems to be almost worse now, is the interplay between the claimant or plaintiff and then the, their counsel. I have some cases where the counsel, plaintiff's counsel, claimant's counsel completely controls the situation, uh, keeps, keeps the uh, person's um, expectations in check, um, it explains things as the case goes along. And I have other cases, I'm involved in one, uh, I've been involved in one recently, where uh, they made a, a procedural decision, a strategic decision, and I called the attorney and, and they said, well, I didn't want to do this, but my client told made me. I said, this is, this is a mate. And I get that they, they, I get that they control. I understand that ethically they, they make, they have to call the big time shots, but the, the interplay between a client and a, and a plaintiff or claims attorney is really underrated. I think in terms of how the case goes. Right. I, I well, I think that's, that's what I was kind of suggesting earlier about claimants coming all, all different types, you know, and, and you're right. You might have someone who is very, you know, litigious as an individual, you know, right. they might have a personal experience where maybe in their family, they've, they've, they've had prior situation or litigation, or they may themselves be a litigant many, many times. And so, you know, they come in that at maybe a, perhaps a more hostile, if I could use that word yeah. approach than, than an attorney who's been there, done that, their experience and just kind of wants to settle this and move on. Yeah. And I think a lot of times uh, claimants can feel very wronged, you know, and they, they want their wrong to be right. And, um, they need counsel to be like, I understand your frustration uh, and that you want to be right, but the, you know, we have to rein it in. <laughs> like, I know you want the moon and the stars, but you probably can only have the clouds, you know, and they just need someone to kind of temper their expectations a little bit. Um, so when it, in, in your position, if you're looking for to add, you know, someone to, to your team an underwriter to your team, like what what qualities are you looking into or looking for in an individual that would excel in in this aspect of the insurance industry? Well, I always, I always lean on first, probably the ability to, to be technical in what they do. I, my, my specific niche right now in the industry is environmental insurance. That's what I manage for, for the company I work for. And I have staff that report to me that are across the United States from, from New York out to California and, and in between. So what you try to find is, you know, and someone doesn't have to be an expert in environmental per se, but it does help. So, for example, you know, we we insure environmental risk, meaning uh, uh, companies that that have potentially environmental liabilities associated with their business operations, uh, whether that's chemicals they work with, solvents, paints. It could be a prior issue where they maybe they they contaminate the soil or groundwater they're in. So there are there are individuals who are experienced uh, from a technical perspective. They may have went to school 
as a geologist or they're, they're a trained geologist and uh, they understand soil, ground, rocks, you know, and, and um, they maybe went post college, they worked as a environmental consultant and, and worked in the field and done some field work. Or perhaps they, they are undergrad degrees in chemistry mm-hmm. and uh, they're very, uh, have very strong knowledge of, of chemicals and that's helpful. Uh, I have some folks that work with me that have those backgrounds. I have other folks who work that, um, uh, that do not. Uh, so it, it's really, it really is one size fits all. But as you get into your particular niche, and that may be property, it may be some sort of casualty line of coverage, you have to really over time become, become more technical in that particular area. You're also looking for somebody who can who can have the ability to engage with our insurance brokers. So there's there's kind of a there's a marketing sales kind of perspective of the job. It isn't just sitting back at the desk waiting for the brokers to bring things to you. There's also an external part of this job. So you're looking for somebody who can who can engage with a broker and over time build a rapport and and, and hopefully. Uh, get uh, business opportunities from that broker. I'm just realizing I could have been a very good underwriter. <laughs> I, I was I was a math major in pre med, <laughs> so I I have all this sci- science and biology knowledge that I don't use on a day by day basis. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, for example, there I've I've known somebody with your background that has gone into life science underwriting. You know, and uh, meaning meaning that uh, they. Companies have niches and verticals that's a life science for one of which is of life science. So they underwrite medical products, could be pharmaceuticals, it could be uh, medical devices, both uh, invasive and non-invasive. It could be research and development, et cetera. And and they are life science underwriters. Yeah, this, see, no one, don't include me into this, this career path. (laughs) It's not too late. (laughs) I'm good. I've, I've already spent enough time doing this. Yeah, time and money and effort and schooling and everything. Yeah. And by yeah. the way, those those underwriters are highly sought after. So they yeah. are reality. Go. Um, I again in kindergarten terms because you skipped over this uh, term, and I, I I think we hear it all the time. But what is an actuary? You oh, said sure. that one. You what is actuarial science? I had a friend in college who wanted to be an actuary at 18 years old, and I, I had no clue what that was. Yeah. And this person was brilliant, and now they. Are still brilliant and make a lot of money, I'm sure, and everything. But, but what is what is the what is an actuary? How do you work with them in underwriting? Well, my mother, yeah, sorry, my mother-in-law was an actuary. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, so maybe just clue me in. Oh, there's some, there's number one is there somebody that you want to sit sit to next to in college when you think it <laughs> that's, that's number right. one. That's right. Uh, but after 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 you attend university, they they are they are the they are the ones that they're they are the I guess the best way to describe it is they're the mathematicians for the insurance companies. They are the ones that study the loss activity, if you will, the loss history of that particular insurance company, generally by product line, by different product lines. So they, they either, the combination of either looking at industry loss data and that carrier's particular claim experience. And they are involved with uh, multiple areas of operations of the insurance company with, with respects to setting claim reserves. So you see some actuary, actuaries are uh, 
responsible for looking at a whole portfolio of, of losses and determining do we believe as an organization mathematically that our loss reserves are adequate. You never want to be under-reserved as an insurance company. So we have rating agencies that examine us, for example, AM Best and Standard & Poor's, and, and they assign ratings to the insurance companies. Uh, you know, there's, there's an A, A, there's A's, there's B's, there's C's, and, and most carriers want to kind of stay in the A category <laughs> in order to do, operate uh, uh, across all kinds of business spectrums. Once you drop, drop into that B category, then you fall off the radar for a lot of companies. They won't do business with you. Part of what AM Best does, the Standard & Poor's, is they look at and they challenge your reserves. Do they believe that you have sufficient reserves against your premium writings? That's the job of the actuaries. They, they are the ones that can use mathematical formulas and predict whether or not they feel like the reserves are adequate or you know, under-reserved or redundant. And, and uh, I would say that most carriers, at least publicly state, they want to at least be somewhat redundant in their reserves, meaning they believe they're over to a certain percentile over based upon something like COVID-19 that we talked about earlier. So you have that cushion there where you think, okay, yeah, I, I, the actuary might advise, we, we think we're fully, re, you know, fully reserved, but let's just add on another 10% and just in case. And that's the job. That, and, 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 then, and then by line of business, they help the underwriters set rates. So they, under, they, under, they look at lines of coverages and, they, and, and some of our lines of insurance, uh, the industry supports some rating of that excuse me, not rating, but rate analysis, like for example, commercial automobile, workers' compensation, and some fire rates uh, are industry, that, that, those kind of rates are learned, or each carrier can look at particular rates and, and determine uh, and share the rates between companies. There's some lines of insurance like d and uh, or environmental insurance that are not supported by that method. So actuaries look at the company's results and determine and advise the underwriters, uh, we, we think within a certain rate range, we'll make money. Do you interact with them day to day or is it is it big reports or is it more of a call and email back and forth all the time? I, well, I, my particular job, I'm in charge of the business unit. So I have an actuary that's assigned to my business mm -hmm. unit and we speak weekly. Matter of fact, I have a call later today with them. <laughs> so uh, we, on a regular basis, we're, we're, we're having discussions about a variety of issues associated with my product line. Um, I think it's, it, it's fascinating because there's so many aspects of like the, the back end of the insurance industry that, you know, Nate and I don't see, we, we, you know, deal with the claims and, you know, and litigating those claims. So, and we just don't see the, what goes on behind the scenes and how involved and honestly, technical it, it is. Um, whereas on our side, I mean, it, there's it's technical in a different way, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, and I so I think it's important for attorneys to understand the back end because then we can do our job a little bit better too. And we understand like what we're telling our claims adjuster. Okay, this is your assessed risk. This is you know your per pure exposure. This is your reasonable settlement range. Like what those numbers mean to them because on. on on their side, because someone else is also looking at, at that as well. So I think it's really important to have a, a better idea of the greater picture. Yeah, and, there, and there's a whole 
it depends on the company, but there, there could be hundreds of actuaries that work for the company. Hundreds, literally yeah. hundreds. Depends upon the size of the insurance company. Yeah, I hope there's uh, not I, just one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it'd be really, really hard work. A lot of stress. But you'll find you'll find you'll find there's a head actuary, like there is, like for example, you know, a CEO of the company. There's generally a somebody who has ro- ro- risen to the to the to the level of the head actuary of the company. But then there are actuaries assigned again by discipline, by underwriting product lines and discipline. And then there are certain actuaries that, that go into certain areas um, and, and try to look at deep into the company's results for going back maybe to the 1930s or 40s. Like for example, mm-hmm. asbestos. Mm-hmm. You still see carriers reserve uh, for asbestos exposures, which kind of came out of the 1940s you know, and 50s and 60s. I'm glad you mentioned that because I I did want to touch on this being in um, the environmental space. I mean, what are the big um, trends that you're seeing as to potential large exposures now or, or moving forward into the future? Well, it's not, not an easy question to answer (laughs) a good question because, because there's different types of environmental policies. There isn't just like one policy type, there's different policies, different types of exposures we write. Um, But I would answer it by this way, at least attempt to, for example, the industry, one product in particular is called a contractor's pollution liability policy. And that policy ensures a contractor and it could be for uh, all the operations that the contractor does. So the policy is not specifically tied to a one location. It's, it's wherever that contractor goes and works, the policy provides coverage for bodily injury, property damage, and, and environmental cleanup for what they do at that job site. Uh, this, that policy can be written also on pro- a certain project. Let's say a large uh, construction project, the policy can be, can be written for that project and all the subcontractors on that site. So one of the areas we found we've been finding recently, and I would say our, my competitors probably also is construction defect issues. That seems to be uh, kind of an evolving trend. Um, and, and, and I wouldn't even call it a trend. It's been, it's been there, but I would say the trend has been that there's been more activity in construction defect and, de- and higher level amount of claims for construction defect. And that, that would typically would be post, post job completed or near, near job completed where the building, let's say it's a building and it's being worked on and, and being renovated and uh, it's gonna be reopened. And now the owner of the, of the property uh, believes that there's a construction defect that's preventing the building from being open. Uh, or they weren't able to get certificate of occupancy because they believe that there's a construction defect allegation. And so depend, again, kind of looping back to the jurisdictions, if that's in a troubling jurisdiction and Depends upon how the um, the either pr- mostly the case I would say the case law in that particular jurisdiction handles construction defects. You know, some jurisdictions might say, you know, it, it's assigned to like an administrative judge, and then he or she kicks it out to arbitration, mm-hmm. and just says, oh, we just you know we're not going to tie up the courts on this. Calls in all the carriers involved, and it just says, you know. It's a $50 million claim. You guys, you know, you all settle it together or I'm just going to sign out percentile on it. And, and depend upon the, the, the jurisdiction, there might not be much you can do about it. Yeah. So we have, we have a deep eye on that, on that side. 
the other, the other one of the other products that is available in the insurance industry is, is uh, pollution legal liability policies, or uh, sometimes referred to as uh, environmental impairment liability policies, or lastly, site pollution. Basically, all those all those names. Uh, it's it's a policy that's written on a on a particular location or locations for an insured. So let's say it's a manufacturer, or it's a municipality, uh, or it's a you know real estate owner. It, it's it's written on their properties, and so there is a trend uh, with certain chemicals that that have evolved over time. Uh, and uh, there is concerns about the chemicals contaminating drinking water. And uh, some of those chemicals are regulated on a state level. Some are not, some are federal, and then some are state and going to be morphing into potentially federal regulation. So as an environmental underwriter, you want to be cognizant of, of those issues. And some of the policies that you write, there may be evolving uh, standards uh, that that might come into play. You might write a policy today, but yet the standard changes over time, and you might be brought into it. It's interesting. We had um, there's a a place in my town that was like an old paint factory or whatever, and apparently they were dumping the paint out <laughs> like out the back, and it seeped. It then seeped into you know the ground, and then it polluted this this little pond area and it was it's like a big issue now but it was like 20 years ago that that this was going on and it's it's trickling you know it still trickles forward today I don't think like I think the houses over there had well water and now they can <laughs> like I mean and that's the thing I mean when environmental claims at least my understanding is that like they last for so long and you might not even know they exist for x amount of time um afterwards so it's just you know exactly right and, and, then, and then and then your paint manufacturer let's say they're out of business there's no one there they oh, the building's gone they haven't the building's gone or let's say it's not gone let's say the building's still there and then uh, time has gone by years have gone by and so there's a whole other aspect of our industry where it's called uh, you know they want to redevelop the property mm -hmm. so let's say now the city or where it happens to sit says, you know what, this is kind of an eyesore. We want to get this, you know, we, we want to reuse the property, reuse it. And uh, you see that more in the urban core area where, um, you know, let's repurpose the property. And so, but but someone who wants to buy it says, wait a minute, I, you know, I'm not going to buy that property because there's contaminants on the property. Well, now the municipalities, you know, it's, it's kind of referred to as the slang as brownfield redevelopment. Folks may have heard about that. You can also apply, depends upon the state or the county, the city, what's referred to as the innocent landowner defense. And you need to engage an environmental attorney mm -hmm. and do all the paperwork. But basically what you, the city, the municipality or the state would say, we'll allow you to redevelop it. And, and we're gonna do due diligence and prove that you never owned this, nor did you once own it, go out of business and morph into another company and come back to own it again. We can prove all that. We'll, we'll give you a get out of jail free card and let you yeah. acquire the property, redevelop it, and we'll ensure that you won't get litigated because you're you're yeah. helping you're helping the community and you're you're reusing the property. Um, and that's see these are uh, these are all things you don't you don't learn about at least we don't learn about as much in law school unless you take the environmental law class, which I don't think I took. <laughs> no, um, and I, I know we're running out of time here, but I have one, one last question for you before, before I let you go. Um, you know, I, I, being in this industry for 35, five years and, you know, you've seen 
I don't want to say I've seen it all. We've seen a lot. <laughs> what advice would you give your younger self now? I, I would I would say uh, younger self would be uh, um, just just continue just stay very laser focused to be very technical. You, you can't be, you know, as I advise young people, you can't you can never. Um, Take, someone can never take away your education, mm-hmm. All right? So, so continue down advanced educational classes, whether that's a postgraduate degree or that's strong technical skills, industry designations, just always continue to, to pursue those paths. I think that's great advice. Excellent. Yeah. Although sometimes the advice I give my younger self is to, to have a little more fun. I think I was too focused. <laughs> <laughs> I'm too focused on grades and I'm like, I missed out on some things, but. Well, you're a math major. That just goes part and parcel yeah. with. But that part was easy. <laughs> oh, for you. Yeah, for you. <laughs> I yeah. majored in Dr. Chang. It was not that hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on, David. Um, really appreciated talking to you and like you giving us the, you know, the explaining how um, underwriting works at, to kindergartners. Um, and, <laughs> and for all our listeners, you know, if you like what you hear, um, please, you know, like and subscribe to the Defense Never Rests on um, Apple Podcasts and at, on YouTube at The Legal Navigator.